Well, welcome everybody to week two of our three-week vision series, culminating next week in our Good Works offering that we're going to receive at the end of our service. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. Father, we pray that you would speak with us today, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week kicked off for us at three weeks of vision. And we're in week two now, but we, we spoke last week as an introduction about God's promise in Second Chronicles, His promise to hear, to heal and forgive. We talked about His part, but we talked about our part. The conditional clause that is the word if at the beginning of that scripture that God's promise is conditional in this scripture on our behavior, conditional on, on our attitude, on our actions. The Bible says in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament and the Torah, the fifth commandment is honor your mother and father. But the second half is often overlooked. It says, honor your mother and father that you may live long in the land. It's the only commandment with a promise attached with a conditional clause that you can live long in the land if parents are honored. That living long in the land is conditional upon us honoring our parents. Conditional clauses are not new in Scripture. We cannot assume that walking with God has no impact on our behavior, attitudes, and actions. Quite the opposite. We must be compelled to audit our actions as a result of following Christ. We spoke last week about the assumption of revival. My friend Matt in Australia he said, Levi, come and teach us how to do family because after God moves, we're going to need those skills. The assumption that he had that God would move, the assumption of revival for me was deeply moving. He assumed that God was going to move, that that part was done, and the only thing left was his part in that process. He assumes that God is going to do great things because God does only great things. He assumed that God was going to move in miraculous ways and so was concerned primarily with his role in that process. He was not interested in his part. We need that kind of faith. We need to have that kind of faith and that kind of belief that God will move to just assume it will happen like Elijah on Mount Carmel, like Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, Peter, John, Stephen in the book of Acts, that God is faithful, that he will move that he will come through, that the church will grow, that people will be saved. So if that's the case, then we are given two options. We can wait or we can work. We can wait or we can work. The Bible gives us a clear doctrine of work. The Bible speaks to us of work. We, it then became known as the Protestant work ethic, that Christians are known for their ability to work. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, if a man does not work, he should not eat. <laughs> it's as clear a scripture as you could ever read. That we only have one life and that we might as well make the most of it. Throughout history, Christians have been known for their work. Mother Teresa, known for her work. Isaac Newton, known for his work. Alexander Hamilton, known for his work. William Wilberforce, for his. As believers, they worked for the cause of Christ of the cause of Christ, and they were compelled to act. As for us, we must do the same. We can wait for God to move, or we can work 
until he moves. We can fulfill our part in the, in the partnership, our part in the relationship. We're called to be humble, prayerful, hungry, and repentant. In other words, we're called to be healthy, devoted believers. And he says that he will hear, heal, and forgive. That sounds to me like our part in God's revival. If health is the goal, and if health brings God's revival, then our vision for this year is to simply be a healthy church. If we, then he, the scripture says. If we have health, then he will bring revival. If we will devote, then he will pour out. If we will follow, then he will move in power. If we will remain, then he will bring the miraculous. The first half is the challenge and the second half is the reward. The first half is God's part and the second part is our part. God's part is unclear, but our part is clear. Hearing, healing, forgiving is a mysterious move of God, but our part to be humble, to be prayerful, hungry and repentant is clear. If we are humble, then he will hear. If we are hungry, then he will heal. If we are prayerful, then he will forgive. And if we are repentant, then he will bring revival. So then what are these virtues that we speak of? What do they mean? Well, today let's take some time to explore that. Humility. The Bible says that if my people will humble themselves, humble themselves. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is one of the most incredible examples of humility in the scriptures. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Bible says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, taking the very nature of a servant, he said. Recently, the queen passed away, and David Beckham, uh, who has to be one of the most recognizable people on the planet, certainly one of the most recognizable athletes on the planet, he waited for nine hours to walk past and pay his respects to the queen. We all know that he could have at any moment pulled a few strings, worked an angle, and got himself to the front of that line. But the humility, the respect of the man said, no, 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 I'll wait my turn like everybody else. Yes, I have just compared David Beckham to Jesus Christ, and yes, that is blasphemous. Then how much more significantly brilliant and powerful and amazing and inexplicably wonderful is Christ when we compare him to David Beckham? Yet the, the picture of Christ humbling himself as a servant is so far beyond sometimes our realm of comprehension that we need a local comparison to get our minds right. Jesus exhibited the kind of humility that we can inspire to have. See, I use David Beckham as an example because in our lives, our desire for influence is so clear and so daily, isn't it? We get a kick out of the smallest impact, views and likes public recognition. Yet Jesus had the most public recognition of any person who's ever lived. He was the son of God. And yet he humbled himself to be a servant and humbled himself even to death and death on a cross. The saddest thing about humility is this. Humility is largely misunderstood. We think humility is God's command to become lowly creatures. Friends, that can be a false humility when we don't truly believe it, but we're trying to be self-effacing and self-abasing and make it not about us. 
Humility is not thinking of thinking less of self. Humility is thinking of self less. John 3.30 says, in order for you to increase, he says, I must decrease. In order for the, the pie chart of my life to be filled with more of Christ, it's just got to be filled with less of me. I've got to spend less time thinking about me and more time on things above. John 2, the first recorded miracle chronologically in the scriptures, says this, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons, big jars. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them, filled them to the brim. Then, they told, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. A miracle is needed. People look to Jesus. Mary steps in and gives him a nudge. He asks for six ceremonial washing jars. He asks that they be filled with water and they were then turned to wine. Friends, we can't manufacture the miracle, but we can be filled with water. We can't, friends, be perfect vessels. All we are is jars of clay. Understand that you are the clay that God then brings the miracle. You are the clay that is filled with the Holy Spirit and God then transitions you, my friend, into wine. You are a walking miracle, but primarily we are clay. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars, in jars of clay, that show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's important to remember that we are clay, humble clay. The word, the word humus um, comes from the word ground. The root word there is where we get the word humble from, that we are to be low to the ground, to remember that he is great and we are not, but he fills us with treasure and makes us great. He stoops down to make you great. Humility, largely misunderstood. But if he's going to hear, heal and forgive, then the first thing he says, if my people who will, will humble themselves. The next word we read is, if my people will humble themselves and what? And pray, prayer. If humility is misunderstood, then prayer, my friends, is taken for granted. Imagine being a foreign operative with access to home base, but choosing to stay radio silent, silent instead. We've all been given access to the Father through prayer. Phil Pringle says prayers are deathless. Wow. Jensen Franklin says prayers outlive the lives of those who utter them. Prayers outlive the prayers. Luke 5.16 says, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Another scripture says that he frequently withdrew. In other words, it was his habit to pray. One of my favorite scriptures about the intimate life of Christ is Luke 22 and verse 41. It says, He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. About a stone's throw. Far enough for privacy, but close enough so that they could see the life that he lived. Far enough so that he could pray in silence, pray in private, but close enough so that they knew that he was in an intimate relationship with the Father. It's crazy to me that Jesus prayed. It's crazy to me that he prioritized prayer. It's beyond me to think that he needed prayer. 
He was God. He desired the intimacy and vision and connection with the Father. If Jesus desired and needed intimacy, connection and vision from the Father, and he was the Son of God, then how much more do we? Galatians 4.19 says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, note this, until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. Prayer forms Christ in us. If Jesus prayed, then how much more do we need it? Some quick thoughts here on a healthy prayer life. It's a few things. It's consistent. It's honest. And it's two-way. It's consistent. How does a mouse eat an elephant? Someone once asked, one bite at a time. It's honest. Authentic prayer is far better than perfect prayer and a lot easier to attain. It's two-way. Let's do more than bring a list. Let's listen to the answer. Oswald Chambers said this, they can shun our appeal. They can reject our message or oppose our arguments, but they are helpless against our prayers. Humility, prayer. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Our third point for today is hunger. If humility is misunderstood and prayer is taken for granted, then hunger, my friends, is just overlooked. Hunger is synonymous with seeking and searching. Hunger is the romantic part of our faith. Hunger is exploring the mystery of God. Hunger is acknowledging that there are parts of God that I don't know about. There are parts of God that I can't grasp and see easily. Second Chronicles uses this phrase. It says, those who humble themselves and pray, it uses this phrase, and seek my face. Seek my face. What a phrase. His face. Not his hands or his brain. His face, the emotion, the heart, the body language, the idiosyncrasies that we see on a face is what he wants us to find. Then Moses said in Exodus 33 and verse 18, now show me your glory. What a prayer. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass by in front of you and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, to you in your presence. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. If my people who are called will humble themselves and pray, seek my face. But then we read in Exodus that no one can see his face. It must not be seen. You see, when we seek his face, we cannot find it. But as we try, we encounter his goodness, his name, and his glory. When we seek his face, we cannot find it. But as we try, we encounter his goodness, his name, and his glory. He says in verse 18, verse 19, he says, I will cause my goodness to pass by in front of you. I'll proclaim my name to you. And then in verse 22, 22, when my glory passes by, his goodness, his name, and his glory are byproducts of us seeking his face. He encourages us to seek, knowing that his face is too holy. But the process of searching is what creates health in us. Hunger for God is an increased desire to find God in our everyday lives. 
God turns up where he is welcome. He fills the space that we create for him. Make sure that we're people who are humbling ourselves. We're praying, but we're hungry to seek his face. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face. And then it says this, turn from their wicked ways. Number four, if you're taking notes, our fourth key word for today is, is repentance. To be repentant, you see, if humility is misunderstood and if prayer is taken for granted, if hunger is overlooked, then repentance is our greatest superpower. Repentance is our greatest superpower. People have superpowers, don't they? Tyler's superpower is energy. If there's no energy in Tyler walks in, the energy has been brought in a supernatural way. Sabrina's superpower is just vibes. If she's involved, it's on. Cats, superpower is consistency. Liam Ballantyne's superpower is peace. His wife's Kerry Ann, her superpower is to ask hard questions. We all have one, don't we? We all have a superpower. But the corporate superpower that we all have, our greatest gift is repentance. It's the greatest welcome that we've ever been given. It's the greatest invitation that God has ever given us. Repentance is the acknowledgement of wrongdoing. It's the assumption of misdemeanor. Repentance is the cornerstone of our faith, of our marriages, of our relationships, of our community. Repentance is our ability to get our lives right with God. Why would we be shy about the opportunity to repent? Why would we be on the back foot about repentance? It's funny, isn't it, that as we grow in our maturity in God, as we grow in our faith, it makes sense that we should repent less because we're growing more. But as we get to know God more, we tend to repent more. We need to repent more and not less. The closer we get to Him because we realize how truly holy He is and how much of a jar of clay I am. So then this week, if someone asks you, What's the vision of local church? You can say, oh, it's to be a healthy church. We're talking about it right now. And they might say, oh, what's that? And you can answer and say, that's easy. It's to be humble, prayerful, hungry, and repentant. If you're here today, what an awesome opportunity that we are given right now to be repentant, to realize that we are far from God, that He came close to us, but we're the ones that remain far away from Him that He sent His Son to die on the cross to give us another chance at life, to give us relationship with Him. And if you're here today, I would love to, love to, love to pray a very simple prayer and believe that your life could be made right with God through repentance. If I could give you a road sign illustration, repentance is a U-turn, 180 degrees. I was going one way, I realized the error of my ways, and I'm turning around to go the other way. God's loving kindness, the Bible says, brings us to repentance. That He draws you, loves you, brings you in, and it helps you and gives you the power to realize the error of our ways through repentance. And so friend, I would love to pray a simple prayer with you that together with me today, you might repent and say, God, I'm wrong. I'm turning around. I'm coming towards you. I'm changing the direction of my life to come and follow you. And so friend, if you're here and you're saying, Levi, that's me. There's a prayer partner that will pop up in the chat. Let's pray the simple prayer today. I'll say one line and you repeat it back to me. It goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, come to you. I need you in my life. I ask you, forgive me of my sin. And I thank you 
that you do. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Amen. Love you, church. I'll see you next week for week three of Vision, culminating in us all being supremely generous to the church and receiving our Good Works offering. I'll see you then. Bye.